Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, helps intercede, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can have a seat. Well, William Cooper, you've never heard of William Cooper. His last name is spelled K or C-O-W-P-E-R, Cooper. He was an internationally known poet who lived in England through most of the 18th century. His poetry spanned the globe. Benjamin Franklin read and commented on his poetry. He was a close personal friend of John Newton, the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, and indeed, John Newton in William Cooper wrote many hymns together. Cooper was a man who was well acquainted with suffering. His mother died when he was six. His father was relationally disconnected from him, sending him to boarding school where Cooper was regularly abused by a 15-year-old boy. When he was 21, he had his first massive bout of depression. When he was 25, after a seven-year-long relationship, his fiancé's father decided to disallow the marriage, and he never married, never was in a significant relationship again. When he was 32, as his public career was about to take a giant leap forward, he became overwhelmed with anxiety about what people might think, about what people might say about him. That anxiety led him to attempt to kill himself, though he failed. In fact, it, he attempted multiple times. And he woke up not only in his depression, but now also in crippling guilt for what he had done. 
He was committed to the insane asylum, and it was there that a Christian doctor helped him to see the gospel. And God used Romans chapter 3, verse 25, to bring him to salvation. However, Cooper would struggle until the day he died. Though Cooper dealt with significantly painful events, any objective evaluation of his life would say that his response to those was beyond the reality of his suffering. Yet what, he, what sustained him and often brought him back from his depression wasn't people telling him that his suffering wasn't that bad. It was Christian men and women caring for him and speaking the truth of Jesus, a truth that was much better than his suffering. Now, some would say, and I've been a pastor for a, a few years, not as long as many people, but more than others, and over the years of being a pastor, you have a tendency because of you know, it's maybe an occupational hazard. You have a tendency to uh, be close to people in the midst of their suffering, to see people's suffering firsthand. And so over the last 15 years, I've had the opportunity to be right there with a number of people who have suffered in different ways. And some would say that it would be insensitive or glib to speak the truth of Scripture to someone in suffering. But I say that you may be insensitive or glib in your approach, but the truth of Scripture is never insensitive, and it's never glib. It's our hope, our only hope. It's our foundation. It's the power of God for salvation. It tells us of the glory that we share in Christ. The truth of Scripture is exactly, exactly what we need suffering. And that's what we find Paul discussing here in Romans chapter 8. See, Paul left off in verse 17 with this reality that we are adopted through Christ into God's family. And because of that adoption, we are heirs to this wonderful, wondrous glorification that we will experience. But being part of the family and gaining that inheritance also means that that we will suffer now as our brother Christ suffered. Not suffering for doing wrong, understand, but suffering for obeying Christ, for being like Christ. See, Paul opens up our passage today with this statement, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's the point I want you to get this morning. If you, if you take nothing else away, this is, this is what I hope gets buried deep in your heart and mind. Friends, the suffering is real. The suffering is real. The more life you live, the more you see it, the more you experience it. The suffering is real, but the glory exceeds the suffering. So what then is this future hope? And what is our present help? Those are the, the two questions that 
Paul is going to answer in our text. The first, he's going to answer in verses 19 through 25. And the second, he's going to answer in verses 26 through 30. And we're going to find this. We're going to find that glory goes beyond our suffering. We're going to find a glory that's beyond our suffering and a confidence in our suffering. So off the top, we need to recognize that Paul's words here in verse 18, for I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, that those words are not meant to minimize our suffering. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. To minimize the suffering would be to minimize the glory. Verse 19 tells us, in fact, that all of subhuman creation waits with eager longing for this revealing, for the revealing of this, this glory. This is how widespread and pervasive this glory will be. But we also find that it's how widespread and pervasive the suffering is. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. It says that creation itself has been subjected to futility. Paul is calling back in this passage all the way to Genesis 3, all the way to the fall. It wasn't willingly that this futility happened to creation. We willingly sin and sometimes bring suffering on ourselves, right? Now, creation didn't. And yet, creation suffers because of our decisions. In fact, it says that the result of human sin is that creation is in bondage to corruption. All of creation, from Genesis 3 to today, is groaning, it says, with the pains of childbirth. Why is that? Or why, why that image? I don't know. Some of you have groaned with the, chain, the pains of childbirth, right? You know very well what that means. Now, m- both Ryder and Josie were born uh, by C-section. So I don't quite have the, the same experience, perhaps, there of the labor pains as you do. And by experience, I mean... Uh, witnessing that. <laughs> Let me clarify there real quick. Sharing in that suffering with my wife, right? But, but I will say this. Ryder, uh, when Ryder was, Amanda was pregnant with Ryder, uh, she got really sick. And, and Ryder was actually born by emergency C-section a month before his, his due date because of how sick Amanda had gotten. We were very concerned. She couldn't keep anything down. She went to the doctor. She still couldn't keep anything down. Um, yeah, and she began to get really dehydrated. And we went to the hospital. And and I remember sitting there, and and we were and they were checking on her, and they were saying, "Oh, we're just going to make sure that everything's okay. We're going to monitor the baby for a little bit." And I'm just like chilling back in this reclining chair. They've got her in the in the birthing room or whatever, and and uh, hanging out. And then all of a sudden, uh, the tone changes. Uh, the, the tone of the doctor's voice changes, and, 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 I'm, and it kind of, per- though I'm not listening to what she's saying, I, it, it, maybe I should have been, it kind of perks my interest, 
And I realized that all of a sudden she's changed from we're monitoring this baby to we're getting this baby out now. And in a whirlwind, in, in a matter of minutes, my son is born, right? And, and in a matter of minutes, it goes from this concern over my wife's health and safety, her life, the life of this baby, to the joy of holding and seeing my son for the first time, my firstborn child. In a similar way, birthing pains aren't less severe because, because of the joy of life, right? Like they still hurt. It's still painful. Rather, when the joy comes, you realize just how much more joyous the pain, than the pain was painful. If this world is all there is, guys, then the pain and suffering that we experience is, is truly futile. As Ecclesiastes says, it's, it's meaningless. And yet, this suffering is expectant, is what Paul says. Because there is something to come. And so verse 23, it says not only creation, but we, believers, that is, the church, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, last week, Stephen shared a little bit that through Christ, we've been adopted as sons. And since we are sons, we have this inheritance. But why, why does this say that we wait for it if last week it said that we are it? And I think what Paul is doing here is he's looking at this from two angles, and it relates to our, actually to our catechism question earlier about justification and glorification. Um, in the legal sense, we are adopted. We have right standing in God's eyes because of Christ. That's true and irrevocable. However, for right now, we lack the fullness of the family resemblance, but one day, we won't lack that. It says that the result of our adoption or our adoption totally fleshed out is actually the redemption of our bodies. The glory we wait for is not just being legally God's children, but fully taking on the image of the Son, as it says in verse 29. This is spiritual, yes, but it's not just spiritual. I want you to understand it's also physical. It's the redemption of our bodies, our bodies, our physical selves. I think sometimes we forget that as we read scripture. Perhaps pop spirituality create, makes us think that, you know, oh, we'll be these little Casper the friendly ghost on a cloud with a harp, and that's not what the Bible says. It's not just spiritual, it's physical. These bodies that we have right now will be redeemed in Christ. Listen, I, I often say that the gospel is how God loves and saves rebel sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's sort of a three-second version of the gospel that I want to get in your heads. And so I say that like every other sermon probably, right? You're like, gosh, I'm tired of you saying that over and over again. 
But when we hear that, we tend only to think about the fall of Genesis 3 and then the redemption of Christ's death and resurrection for us. And it's the limits of a three-second version, right? And we can forget the whole story actually starts with creation, that God created a good world. And then the fall happened. And then Christ came to earth and he lived a perfect life and he died for our sins and he was raised again to as a guarantee that one day he will raise us and he will redeem us and he will recreate all of the earth. New heavens and a new earth. And that's the entire story. And Paul is touching on that here in Romans 8. Roman 8, Romans 8 reminds us that all subhuman creation is part of this restoration. The plan for the earth isn't to destroy or delete it, but it's to redeem it just as he redeems us. Yet while we wait, so that gives us an idea of the, the, how widespread this suffering is and how widespread this glory is, how, how deep this glory runs as well. But while we wait, we have what... Paul calls the first fruits of the Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, we have two things, friends. We have a taste of what's to come, and we have a guarantee of what's to come. A taste in that the Spirit is already working in us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ. It's that sanctification that he was talking about. That, that we are adopted in one sense. That's legally done, completed, finished, and then we are becoming more and more like a son of God, right? Like Christ. But one day, that work will be finished. That's glorification. And so we have a taste of what that's going to be right now as God reforms us and as God through us reforms the world into the likeness of his kingdom. And we have a guarantee in that we see these things happening, and as we see them happening, it reminds us of what we are groaning for. It reminds us of the finalization of Christ's work. It should draw our hearts to long for more of Jesus. And so we wait with hope, verse 24, in hope, right, future-looking, awaiting our adoption, we were saved, past, having been adopted. We don't merely hope for hope's sake, as if hope itself is the goal. I think sometimes in our world we talk like, well, if you have hope, just any kind of hope, hope in anything, then, then you're good. But that's actually not good. If your hope is in something that isn't real, then it's not really truly hope at all, is it? It's a fool's hope. For hope to be hope, it must have an object, as its object, something real. But real, friends, isn't necessarily seen here and now. Actually, the very fact, Paul says, that it is not seen here and now is what makes it worth waiting patiently for. As 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. They, they come and go. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 
So we wait with patience, it says. Maybe a better translation there would be patient endurance. It's one thing to be patient. Another thing to have patient endurance. We were on vacation last week, and I can't remember what we were waiting for, but we had to wait, and, and my kids were all just, you know, like jumpity about, like, we're like, is this going to happen and whatever, and, and I was just kind of like chilling, you know, like, hey, you just got to be patient. It's going to happen. We go, oh, I remember we were waiting to go tubing. That's what we were going to wait. We were waiting for our boat so we could go tubing, and the kids were like, and I'm just like, it's cool. We started talking about patience. And I realized, well, I could be really patient right now, but when, when one of my kids is doing something that's bothersome to me, all of a sudden my patience is like zero, right? And that's that idea of patient endurance, that when it's difficult, you continue to be patient. And we can do this because we understand that as bad as the suffering might be at times here, the glory outweighs the suffering. A few months ago, I shared part of a story of a man named John Patton. I don't know if you remember, if you were here, if you remember this. John Patton was a missionary to uh, the New Hebrides, is what it was called then, a set of islands kind of halfway in between Hawaii and Australia. And he suffered greatly in order to bring the gospel there in the 1800s. In fact, he lost his wife and his child on the island. He was constantly in fear of being killed by the people there. He suffered tremendous illness. When he decided, though, that he would go there, a man, we only know the man by the name Mr. Dixon. A certain Mr. Dixon told him, you can't, you can't go there. You'll be eaten by cannibals. Indeed, a few men who went there to share the gospel but 20 years before hadn't actually been killed and eaten by cannibals. And so this Mr. Dixon says to John Patton, he says, you can't go there. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. Patton responds in this way. I, I, I love this. He says, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What a, what a per, first off, what a perfect response. Second, how convicting it is that I don't view my life right now in light of the eternal weight of glory that I have in Christ. That we would come to grips with the reality of the suffering we face for Jesus, and yet that the glory of Christ would outshine the darkness in our hearts and minds. And indeed, it doesn't. I, I oftentimes don't have Patton's zeal in this. I don't know about you, but I am often weak, and I hate to admit it, but there are times when I cower in fear of what Jesus might cost me. If I say this, if I do that, what will I lose? And there's a shift in our passage in verse 26. Paul says, likewise, 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Paul knows that suffering comes. And when suffering comes on our own, we will be overwhelmed by it. Our confidence will wane. And so the question is, what is our present hope then? What's our confidence in our suffering? Paul starts with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who sadly is often forgotten by Christians. The Holy Spirit by whom by whom the Bible was preserved and, and brought to us, right? Written. The Holy Spirit who the Bible calls our comforter and guarantor of our salvation. It says that the Holy Spirit is who seals us. Not only that, but Paul tells us that, that in the moments of our weakness, when they come and we fall on our knees because we don't know what to do and the weight of our suffering, I don't know if you've ever been in that place where the weight of your suffering is so much that you, you have no idea what to do, what to think, what to say, and you fall on your knees in prayer, in, in tears, and the, the pain of other sins, the pressures that you face, the persecution for holding to what the Bible says, the pain of seeing people we believed were Christians walk away and even criticize the clear teaching of Scripture. When all this comes and we fall on our knees to pray and we're speechless because we don't even know what to say. We don't know where to start. It says that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes on our behalf. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you in those moments. Can you imagine that? That tough moment. You know, have you ever been in that, uh, a really difficult season, a really difficult moment, and you have another believer, a dear friend, come alongside of you? Reach out an arm around your shoulder as you cried, as you can't even form words that pray for you and over you, the words that you can't even figure out how to say. Have you ever had that? happen, how sweet that is, how, how wonderfully that ministers to your heart. The Holy Spirit does that constantly for you. God himself puts his arm around you, prays for you when you can't make out the words. The second confidence that we have uh, this, that, that gives us help in, in this present moment in our suffering is the image of the Son. Verse 28 says, and we know Paul isn't trying to convince the Romans of this reality here. He, he's showing the connection between what he assumes they already know and are sure of and what that means for them in their present situation. He says, and we know for those who love God, See, the truths about to be described, whatever they are, they are limited only to those who are believers, for only true believers can love God. It says, for we know, for those who love God, all things work together. Certainly, all things includes the suffering mentioned 
But I see no reason why this should be limited only to suffering. It's, it's all things here. Every, every last thing. Things work together for good. What does it mean, good? See, people like to pull this verse out of context and kind of use it to say whatever they want it to say, to define good however they want to define it, rather than how this passage itself would define it. The idea that this verse means that God promises us every good earthly thing we want is frankly ludicrous. Now, God gives you good things. He has given you many good things. But this entire passage is declaring the reality that Christians suffer. It's declaring the reality that we will suffer at times. The promise is that for those suffering, that suffering will not be fruitless and will not be pointless if you're suffering in Christ. That is the promise. It at least means that whatever happens for believers, the final result will be our glorification. Or as verse 29 says, the conforming, our conforming to the image of the Son. That is the good. It seems to me that that would include anything right now that works towards the final goal of salvation and helps to sustain us in it. Every bit that we are changed right now in the image of Christ, especially in the areas we'd least expect to be changed, right? You you, you know those areas of your life that you struggle the most in? And all of us have different areas, right? Like I have my issues and you have your issues and my issues aren't your issues and your struggles aren't my struggles, but we all struggle in some way. And so in the areas where where we are least like Christ, where we have least tendency to become like Christ, when we do become more and more like Christ, that should give us confidence that God is doing his work. You see, just as pregnancy comes with pains and morning sickness and all of that, it also comes with these joyous signs of life, the feeling of movement in the womb. And you can feel the shape of your child's foot the belly, when you can hear the heartbeat. So too, in the pain of suffering, God gives us signs of life, a Christ-like response to an insult. And we go, wow, I did not expect myself to respond like that. You ever been there? A resolve where we didn't have it before, a willingness to surrender something that was a priority but isn't anymore, an impulse to serve even though we're treated unfairly. How, listen, how can you trust God? How can you trust in Christ for your glory one day in the next life if you're looking to yourself for your glory in this one? But when we trust here in Christ, when we rest in Him When he does that work in us, it reminds us, it gives us confidence that one day he will finish that work in us. That is worth it.
The third competence builder is the purpose of the Father. Verse 28, it ends, those who are called according to his purpose. You see, I found it, I found it helpful how one scholar summarized this passage. He, he paraphrased it like this. We know that all things are working for good for those of us who love God. And we know that this is so because we who love God are also those who have been summoned by God to enter into relationship with him. A summons that is in accordance with God's purpose to mold us into the image of Christ and to glorify us. You see, while we are those who love God, and that's something that that we have real responsibility to decide to do, the confidence-building point that Paul is making here is that anyone who is a Christian is called by God to be a Christian. It is his purpose. And that calling is his eternal purpose, and God doesn't fail at his purposes. And so his calling is always effective. And Paul lays this purpose out in four phases. This isn't, this isn't all that salvation is, but I think salvation at least includes this. And I think these are the elements of our salvation that are particularly helpful for us in our sufferings. Paul says those he foreknew, those who God foreknew, God predestined. Those who God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Whole sermons have been written on just these two verses, and we are out of time already. So I'm just going to relate a few things briefly that I think help us have confidence in suffering, particularly. First, foreknowledge. Perhaps this is the most debated of all the words that, that are in these two verses, right? There are those who would argue that this is simply God looking forward through the corridor of time and knowing ahead whether or not people will either morally or uh, will be moral or will choose him, right? Like God just looks ahead in time and goes, okay, that's a moral person or that person will choose me. And so, so that's my foreknowledge. And to be honest, I, I held this view for a long time. In fact, <laughs> I... <laughs> I didn't just hold this view. I found any other view than this to be objectionable, like to be offensive to me. And so if you don't like what I'm about to say, I get it. Bear with me. At the end of the day, as always, I must submit to Scripture, not to what I like. And I think there are at least three reasons that a simple intellectual knowledge of our future decision is insufficient for this passage. First, it doesn't account well for the way that this verb is used in the New Testament, particularly when God is the subject of this verb. Second, is the personal sense in which God knows. It's not saying here that God knows something or anything about us, it's saying that God knows us, that God knows you, that God knows the believer particularly, person, not just about them. Third, it's not saying that God 
It's not everyone that he foreknows. If it was everyone he foreknows in this passage, then it must be everyone he predestines and calls and et cetera, et cetera. But it's not. It's only some that he foreknows. It's only some that he predestines. It's only some that he calls. If he were merely looking forward in time, well, he would actually foreknow everyone. But that's not what it's saying. There would be no point then in Paul including the word foreknowledge in this passage at all. So foreknowledge must be something unique to those who will eventually be glorified. It must be. And I would argue then that this foreknowledge is a decision by God to know us, those who are believers, in a covenant relationship beforehand. Beforehand what? Not just beforehand of Uh, when you prayed a prayer, not just beforehand when you accepted Jesus in your heart, but before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter reiterate to us. That before the foundation of the world, before it was created, he knew you. Not he knew about you, friends, but he knew you. He decided to put his love on you particularly. Foreknowledge, however, isn't the main focus of verse 29. You see, foreknowledge actually then leads to predestination. This is the gracious election, and it has a particular purpose, conformity to Christ. Not only does our conformity bring glory to Christ as the firstborn, but Christ's resurrection, it gives us a reference point for the redemption of our own bodies. God's glory leads to our glory, and God is glorified by the fact that he glorifies us. This foreknowledge and predestination then gives us confidence that if God decided on this relationship beforehand, that if God decided before the foundation of the world that he would be in relationship, in a loving covenant relationship with you, believer, that anything that happens now, any suffering that we experience in no way adds to or can take away from that. That's the wonderful, glorious truth of foreknowledge and predestination, that whatever suffering you're experiencing I don't have to wonder if it's because God doesn't want to be in a relationship with me anymore or God doesn't love me. It can't be because God decided it not only before any suffering ever happened to me, but before suffering ever even entered the world, before indeed the world was created. Additionally, my love for God, it feels like it can wax and wane. I don't know about you. Maybe your love for God is just always at 100%, but mine feels like it can wax and wane. And that could cause me to fear that it may cease at some point, that I would stop loving God. But if my love for God is based first in his choosing to be in a relationship with me, then that anxiety is dispelled because his love never fails. 
And so those he predestined, he also called. God's gracious election results in his effective calling us to salvation. Now, this doesn't take away from our responsibility to respond to that calling. But the Bible declares all over that God is sovereign and and humanity is responsible for its actions. It's, I think, one of the clearest examples is in Acts 2.23. It says this, this Jesus, Paul, uh, Peter's preaching here, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, that's a great example of where foreknowledge actually means something very specific. Not just looking forward and going, oh, I know that's going to happen, but I planned that. That will happen because I decided, says God. And yet, and yet, there's still responsibility in the hands of lawless men. See, just because it was God's surefire plan doesn't mean that those who crucified and killed Jesus didn't make a real decision with real consequences. And so those whom he calls, then he also justifies. Now we talked about this in Romans 1 through 4, and if you missed it, I would commend to you my sermon on Romans 3, 21 through 26. But, But justification is the reality that we are put in right standing before God based on faith alone in Christ alone. And so those whom he foreknows, he predestines. Those whom he predestines, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And here's the point. What God starts, God finishes. What God starts, God finishes. The vocabulary here is inescapable. Those he foreknows, he predestines. Not some. It's not like he foreknows some and then some he get to the predestination step. And and, and some of those whom he predestines get to the, the calling step. And some of those whom he calls get to the justification step. And some of those whom he justifies get to the glorification step. No, no, no. That's not how this works. Everyone he foreknows is glorified, period. That's the unbreakable chain. Of Romans 8, 29 through 30. If this isn't certain, then friends, we don't have any real hope. If this isn't certain, we have no reason to be here this morning. Y'all should be home, taking a nap. If this isn't certain, then God is unable to keep his promises. But friends, it is true. It is true. It is certain. Therefore, we can have confidence even in our suffering, and we can have hope despite our suffering, because even though the suffering is real, the glory exceeds the suffering. We know that Jesus is glorious, and we know that he will glorify us. And so though William Cooper struggled with suffering all his life, it was Christian men and women speaking the gospel and living the gospel to him that helped him to lean into the precious truths of scriptures to the very end. One of his most famous poems 
It's also one of the very last poems that he wrote in his life. His title is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and I want to read just a little bit of it to you in closing. He wrote this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that there are many here who are suffering, struggling, as they try to live faithfully for you in in a world that's filled with so much pain. Whether it be whether it be the, the suffering that's brought on by the corruption of our, our bodies and sickness and pain, the corruption of, our, of creation and disaster, destruction, whether it be the suffering that's brought on by the sins of other people and their refusal to submit to you. Lord, I pray that today as we reflect on your word, as we remember what you have done for us in the result, the resulting resurrection and glorification of you, that your spirit, that your spirit would remind us that the suffering isn't, isn't the final conclusion. but that your resurrection is the answer. I thank you for that reality, and I pray all these things in your name. Amen.